Please be aware that True Crime by the Book may discuss topics, share opinions, and use language that could be disturbing or offensive to some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Tidings and salutations, bibliophages. Thank you for joining me on True Crime by the Book, where every other Tuesday we meet up to talk real crime one page at a time. I'm your host, Tasha Pierce, and today we're going to do something just a little different. Today I'm going to introduce What's Up Docs. So eventually, as the show grows, I'm going to produce bonus episodes for listeners who choose to financially support the podcast on a monthly basis. And in these bonus shows, I'm going to watch documentaries, docuseries, and biopics that center on real crimes and real people. Now, if you'd like to donate to the show, I would certainly appreciate it. And currently, there is a link in the show notes that makes uh, contributing easy peasy. You have the option of making a one-time contribution or supporting on the monthly level. Five bucks will unlock the uh, What's Up Docs segment. That is the minimum support to unlock it. But today, we're going to be watching a documentary that I found on YouTube on real crimes. And it is covering Christopher Dorner. Now, Christopher Dorner became America's most wanted fugitive after embarking on a, a murder spree in 2013 that was fueled by vengeance. And I'm pretty sure a lot of you remember the case, but if you don't, I'm here to refresh your memory. I'm going to give you a little background on Christopher Dorner first. Uh, He was born in New York on September 11th, 1979. His family moved to California when he was very young. And when he was in the first through seventh grade, he claims to have encountered racism from other students. Now, racism ends up playing quite a big part in Christopher Dorner's case because he kind of never let it go. So if he actually was bullied as a child because of his race, and of course, that kind of thing would stay with someone, but he would never let it go. Everything came back to race for Christopher Dorner. But anyway, he attended Cypress High School in Cypress, California, where he graduated in 1997. So Christopher graduated from Southern Utah University in 2001 with a major in political science and a minor in psychology. And while there, he was a running back on the football team from 1999 to 2000. So what does all that say to me about Christopher Dorner? Yes, but between the first and the seventh grade, he claims to have been uh, subjected to racist bullying, but he went on to become a very educated, described as articulate young man. And also about this episode and, and, and the others like it, I'm playing a little bit more fast and loose. I'm not stuck to my script like I normally am, so... Yeah, I, I hopefully feel or sound a little more relaxed. That's the whole point of what's up, docs, is for me to relax a little. Don't have to read through uh 
10 or in some cases, 20 hour book and be able to recount to you what I have learned about a person. So this was real quick. It was a 45 minute documentary. If you're interested, we got some background on Christopher Dorner. I'm going to tell you a little bit more about him and then we'll get into the crime spree. As a teenager, Chris decided to become a police officer and joined a youth program offered by the police department in La Palma. He entered the United States Navy Reserves and rose to the rank of lieutenant. He received training for rifles and pistol marksmanship like all recruits. In 2002, while training for the Naval Reserve at Vance Air Force Base, Dorner and a classmate found a bag containing nearly $8,000 that belonged to the nearby Enid Korean Church of Grace in Enid, Oklahoma. They turned the money into police because Dorner believed that the military stressed integrity. There was a couple thousand dollars, and if people were willing to give that to a church, it had to be pretty important to them. So Dorner also stated that his mother taught him honesty was the best policy, and that just shows that there was a point when he had a level of high regard for the military and a level of high regard for law enforcement and that he considered himself an honest person due to his uh due to his upbringing from his mother so we see examples of him at one time being a decent human he was honorably discharged in 2013 from the from the army or I'm sorry from the navy reserve during his time as a Navy reservist, uh, Dorner joined the Los Angeles Police Department, the LAPD, from here on. He entered the police academy in 2005, graduating in 2006. After returning from a military deployment in July 2007, Dorner was paired with training officer Teresa Evans to complete his probationary training. Now, this is where... The ball gets to rolling for Chris Dorner. On July 28, 2007, Dorner and Evans responded to the Doubletree Hotel in San Pedro regarding a disturbance being caused by Christopher Gettler. And Christopher Gettler uh, suffered from schizophrenia with severe dementia. So two weeks later, Evans gave Dorner a performance review and in that review, it was stated that he needed to improve in three areas. Now, they didn't tell what areas he needed to improve in, but it seems that it could be taken that Dorner, in retaliation for this uh, review that says he has things that he needs to work on, he filed a report alleging that Teresa Evans had used excessive force in the arrest of Christopher Gettler. And he, he accused her of kicking uh, Gettler in the chest and in the face while he was handcuffed and lying on the ground. So when something like this happens, of course, there is an internal uh, investigation by the LAPD. And as they investigated the complaint, they examined the allegation against Ella Evans and Two LAPD captains and a criminal defense attorney were the like board 
on this internal review. So during this seven-month investigation of this complaint of Dorners against Evans, she was, she was assigned to desk duty. Now for the board testimony, the board hearing, Dorner was represented by a former LAPD captain, Randall Kwan. So now the review board heard testimony from a num number of witnesses. And there were employees from the hotel who witnessed most of the arrest. And they said, no, they don't, they don't recall seeing any kicking to the suspect. Gettler was brought to the police station, of course, and remembering now is schizophrenic and he has dementia. But he was brought to the police station. He was given medical treatment for injuries to his face, but he never said that he was kicked. Later on that day, it's stated by Gettler's father that he did say he had been kicked by a female officer and that he was kicked in the face and in the chest. Once they had the hearing for Dorner's complaint, Gettler was incoherent. Remember, he had schizophrenia and dementia, so he was incoherent. incoherent. So the board of review decided that Christopher Dorner's allegation was not credible, that he had lied on this officer, Teresa Evans. And then in 2008, Dorner was fired for making false statements in his report and in his uh, testimony against Evans. Now, his litigator, Randall Kwan, stated that Dorner was treated unfairly and was being made a scapegoat. Dorner appealed and he appealed and he appealed some more, but all of his appeals were his his termination was upheld, which caused him to hold the biggest flipping grudge in the world. Now, do I know what happened on that arrest when they went to arrest Christopher Gettler? No, there is basically Dorner's word versus versus Evans word. And she had witnesses, three witnesses that were employees of the hotel who said we didn't see any abuse. The only witness that Christopher Dorner has that says that there was some uh, excessive force used is the is the suspect himself, Christopher Gettler, who is prone to bouts of schizophrenia and dementia. So his he, he didn't have the best he didn't have the best the best witness. She had better witnesses. Would I put it past the LAPD? That's a whole entirely different question. The question right now is, could it have been proved? Could it have been proven? The answer was no. So that would mean that he maliciously went out and made this complaint against her simply because she gave him a less than stellar review. Or he could have been telling the truth and crossed the blue line and you just don't do that. We'll never know about that end of things. What we do know is that Christopher Dorner held a grudge. A very, very toxic, cancerous grudge. It turned into a murder spree. 
in Dorner's estimation, he wasn't believed because he was black. He hadn't shown at that moment any reason to believe that this was a race-based issue. It was his truth versus her truth. And somewhere in the middle, somewhere in the middle, there's the real truth. Or her truth was more believable. Chris remembered as a young kid growing up in Southern California that he was bullied because of his race. But he wasn't going to be bullied anymore. So on February 3rd, 2013, Monica Kwan and Keith Lawrence were riding the high of their recent engagement. Just four days earlier, they announced to families and friends their intentions to marry. The pair had a relationship that centered around their love of basketball. And that's my kind of couple. Uh, their style of play was opposite one, of no one another. He was calm and collected and she was spirited and fiery, but the love was there. She had be actually begun a career in basketball as an assistant coach at Cal State Fullerton. He was beginning his career in law enforcement. Now, the young couple had their whole lives ahead of them, and they planned to spend it together. Who knew that their lives would be pawns in a very sick game? See, Monica Kwan was the daughter of Randall Kwan. And Randall Kwan, remember, represented Chris Dorner in his hearings against his former employers. So now this grudge that, uh, that uh, Dorner held against the older Kwan is going to spill over onto Monica and Keith. Uh, he felt like he had a grudge because he thought he received ineffective counsel. He didn't think that Kwan was trying very hard to defend him in these hearings. So while Monica and Keith sat in her Kia, uh, Kia Optima outside of their condo, shots rang out. The couple was slain in the vehicle and they would never even know why. You got Monica and Keith sitting outside their condo and suddenly a sniper shoots them. So they're, they're deceased. A very young couple, very good looking couple. I have a picture of the couple on my Twitter. You can go to TC by TB on Twitter and you can see a photo of the couple. Meanwhile, on Facebook, a strange post was uploaded from Dorner's account on February 4th. It turns out that he had composed an 11,000 word manifesto detailing his intentions to exact revenge on the LAPD for what he considered a wrongful termination and damage to his quote-unquote name. Now, this document details what he says he observed as a trainee in the LAPD. He rec recounts numerous incidents that include officers using racial epithets in his presence. Now, this is all according to him. So we don't know if any of it is true, but it is a part of his litany of complaints. Um, he also sent a package to Anderson Cooper that contained a video voicing his complaints. Now, now the police are aware of Dorner's threats against law enforcement. 
and they named him the prime suspect in the deaths of Monica and Keith and were actively searching for him. It's when the search began, uh, things ramped up quite a bit. It was uh, a very tense manhunt for Christopher Dorner and lots of lots of mishaps happened with this. Now, the mishaps in this investigation weren't part of the documentary I watched, but I would be remiss if I told you this story and didn't detail ways that the investigation was kind of fumbled and flawed and uh, things that could have been done better on law enforcement's part. At the end of the day, far more people were affected by this manhunt than needed to be. So one of the things that Dorner continuously tried to hammer home, especially in his manifesto, is that this is all about his name, his reputation. He would not live to see his reputation restored, but everything that he was doing from the murder of Monica Kwan and Keith Lawrence was to restore his name. And I'm, I'm thinking to myself, this is a horrible, horrible way to try to to bolster your reputation, you're not going to have a good reputation <laughs> after this. So that just, just going forward, know that he's saying that, you know, this was all about racism and his firing was all about racism. And this crime spree is all about restoring his reputation, protecting his name. So after that, that manifesto, came out on February 4th. We have a couple of days of relative quiet while the LAPD has launched this manhunt, which is looking, every manner of law enforcement is looking for Christopher Dorner at this time. So on February 7th, we got two LAPD officers and they were driving to a protection detail when they were flagged down by a citizen. So it's one o'clock in the morning they stop to see what this citizen wants. Citizen says, hey, I just saw Christopher Dorner. I saw that guy that you guys were looking for. The officers investigated the report and they were following a pickup truck. When the driver stopped, he got out of the car and then he fired a rifle at them and he grazed the head of one of the officers. So here we have these two police officers just doing their job and they're confronted by a rifle wielding motorist and he took a shot. He grazed them, grazed one of the officers, but he did not inflict critical injuries or anything like that on him. About 20 minutes after that, two officers in Riverside were ambushed while they were sitting at a red light. Now, one of the officers, Michael Crane, uh, died shortly after the shooting. The other was rushed to a nearby hospital in critical condition for surgery, and he did survive. So the survivor was Andy Takayas, and uh, Michael Crane was the officer who lost his life in that shooting. Witnesses on the scene reported the driver didn't even leave in a hurry. It's not like he smashed on his gas and that he was actually smiling at what he had done and he drove away nonchalantly. Just 
not a care in the world, like or the entire body of law enforcement of California is not looking for your ass. He just drove off like Miss Daisy's in the back. And that just speaks to, it's got to be narcissism. Like, I don't even have to be in a hurry. I just, I just shot these officers and I ain't even got to be in a hurry. Who going to stop me? You know, the two witnesses, they can't stop them. They're not armed. And even if they are armed, it takes a special kind of person to be literally prepared at all times to fire their weapon at somebody. And uh, Christopher Dorner is proving that he is that person. He is the one. He's always ready. What he doesn't know is that the full might of law enforcement is on his ass at this very point. Okay, we're still at February 7th and at 3 o'clock in the morning, it's reported that a man who matched Dorner's description was attempting to steal a boat in San Diego. And he was like, he would, he's going to take this boat to Mexico. The police at this point were like, okay, he's trying to flee the jurisdiction. So let's get out a, a federal warrant on him, a federal criminal complaint saying that he's trying to leave this jurisdiction to avoid prosecution here in California for these crimes. And I think that was just a misdirect. Dorner knew that if he tells this guy that he's going to Mexico, they're going to lock the border down. They're going to be looking for him there. And in fact, Dorner would be found days later, still in California. That gray pickup truck that Dorner was driving a few hours later is found uh, on the side of the road and it is on fire. It, the burned remains of this truck was it was a 2005 Nissan Titan just burned out because Dorner had abandoned this vehicle. So let's talk about some of the things that happened on February 7th after, after the shootings of the officers at the light and the shootings at the officers earlier that evening, police are on high alert. They are searching for this pickup truck. And at 5.30 a.m., there was a group of seven LAPD officers who thought they saw that truck. They uh, saw a Toyota, Toyota Tacoma, and they opened fire on it. They just didn't look, they wasn't sure who was in the truck. They opened fire on this truck and shot the two people that were inside the truck. And that was uh, Emma Hernandez, who was 71 years old, and her daughter, Margie Carranza, who was 47. They're out delivering newspapers. The police said they thought that was a Nissan Titan. It is a Toyota Tacoma. They thought it was a Nissan Titan because that's the vehicle that they believed Dorner was in. They just opened fire. Uh, this is a truck that is known to that neighborhood. All the neighbors know the two ladies who delivered the paper kept their lights off because they didn't want to wake everybody up as they're delivering these newspapers. So they didn't drive down the street with their lights on. But the police saw this, thought it was a threat and open fire. 25 minutes later, the Torrance Police Department like bumped into with their car 
and then opened fire on another vehicle. This is a uh, Honda Ridgeline, and it's black, and it's driven by a white male. A white male. We're looking for a black guy in <laughs> in a Nissan Titan, but they opened fire on a white guy driving a Honda Ridgeline. So again, they are so on edge that they're not even looking to take this man alive. Chris Dorner, all they, they just, they're just opening fire on vehicles. David Perdue was on his way to the beach to go surfing and Torrance police officers once again stopped a vehicle and opened fire. Now this truck is supposed to be a more of a, it matched the description of Dorner's truck. But again, this is, person does not look anything like the suspect that you are looking for and this vehicle was a different make and a different color so it matches the description but it's a different make and it's a different color you go figure so needless to say lots of money was paid out <laughs> to these to these uh victims because all of them lived the last uh, Purdue wasn't even injured, but all of them lived through uh, through the shootings. And I mean, it was like a hundred something rounds in the ladies, the two older ladies vehicle. And to this, I say, you know, the, the police said they were at a disadvantage because Dorner had the element of surprise. But I say the the, the advantage was theirs. They are everywhere. The police, in this case, are legion. It's only one Dorner. You know, he can't make any mistakes. The police can make a million mistakes. Look how many mistakes they made uh, juggling with people's lives. They can make these mistakes and still be getting close to him. He could not make any mistake if he wanted to stay ahead of the police. And we know that nobody's perfect, so he's going to make a mistake. They were in a hurry and they were on high alert. They were afraid. And I say this afraid because we're seeing it an awful lot now. This is not for me to put to pull out a soapbox and stand on it and and start shouting from the rooftops about, come on, police, you guys are the ones in authority. What the hell are you afraid of? And why? Do you continuously get afraid of people who uh, mean you absolutely no harm? I, if I haven't said so, I'm an African-American woman. I have an African-American son. My son is six foot five. Big old guy, you know, and uh, very muscular, very big. And it's, it's impossible for me to think that anyone could ever see this kid as a threat. These people that were in their vehicles doing what they do, whatever that is they were doing, going to the beach or delivering newspapers, were not a threat. Yet the police opened fire on these people. And I'm not just, it doesn't just happen to black people, but it happens to us an awful lot. <laughs> so off my soapbox, this is where I say, the police bungled and fumbled in this investigation. 
because a lot of people unnecessarily got hurt. A lot of people unnecessarily were scarred by this already stressful event. You've got a gunman loose in the city that you live in and you're still trying to go about life as normal and the police are mistaking you for the criminal. You only understand it when it happens to you, I guess. <laughs> and these people got a real quick understanding of what it feels like to be considered a threat when they're just doing everyday mundane things. And this was in 2013. It seems like it has ramped up and maybe it's because we're in a social media age. Seems like it has ramped up here lately, but I digress. I'm going to say a Tatiana Jefferson is another case of a person who was viewed as a threat doing something absolutely mundane. So uh, back then, this is where I disagreed with their handling of this situation. And it continues today. It continues today. But anyway. Because police found this burned out vehicle that Dorner uh, left on the side of the road, they know he's in the area. They can kind of map out an 80 mile radius. So they shut everything down. They locked down every damn thing. The schools, officers are on door to door searches to make sure that he's not holding some person hostage inside their home. It was a big, big deal. The, the energy was that they felt like they were closing the net on Christopher Dorner. And little did they know that this is going to go on for a few more days before they get their man. We move on to February 9th. So we skip a day because it was quiet that day. No word from Dorner. On February 9th, the LAPD say, hey, we're reopening this case that Dorner made these allegations against Teresa Evans. We're reopening it. We're looking at it to make sure that we weren't wrong in our assertion that he had lied about this whole thing. So they were just trying to make sure they did their due diligence to make sure he was not wrongfully terminated because they felt like if they said we were wrong, this would end the spree that that uh, Chris Dorner had embarked upon but of course this is never about what he said it was about he's a narcissist his ego was bruised i'm pretty sure that a he did not like a woman telling him that his job performance was not up to par that b he did not like that this white woman was telling him this so these are things that they damaged his ego more than his reputation so this is what we're dealing with this ego he doesn't care about his name for real now he's just out to hurt people to prove that his that he is superior to them that all of these police are looking for him they can't find him and he's picking them off one at a time i'm pretty sure that is his thought process while this is going on I know I said I wasn't going to do a lot of speculation in this show. This is speculation after the fact. This story has an ending. So this is why I am speculating about this particular crime, because 
it has an ending. We know how it ends. And if you're not sure how it ends, stick around to the end of the show. <laughs> it will definitely become clear to you that this is not going to have uh, a happy ending, so to speak, for somebody anyway, right? Anyway, February 10th, there's a $1 million award put on Dorner's head. He's a domestic terrorist at this point. The way one of the officers put it in the documentary was that it is ironic that Dorner's supposed fight against prejudice led him to open fire on two men he didn't know simply for what they were wearing. So his own prejudice against uh, law enforcement at this point sent him on a rampage to what end, you know? He, he saw that his goals were crumbling. Uh, he was depressed. His retribution was going to come in the form of vengeance, period. He had already stated that he wasn't going to be alive to even see his name cleared. So that did not matter to him. He knew how this scenario was going to end. On Fe February 11th, Riverside, Riverside District Attorney filed formal charges against Dorner for the attempted murder of three officers and the first degree murder of uh, one police officer. So we move on to February 12th. On February 12th, police are all over the fucking place. Excuse my French. <laughs> They're all over the place. They're raiding a, a hotel in Tijuana, Mexico. They they say they had a sighting of Dorner uh, buying scuba gear. They've got all these different sightings and none of them, none of them are turning up anything. And again, I think Dorner planted the Mexico seed uh, way back when he told the, the person on the boat that he is, I'm on my way to Mexico. He basically sent them off. On a, on a wild goose chase while he's deeper in the San Bernardino mountains getting ready to hunker down for the last stand. And that last stand is going to come on February 12th. When uh, a report came in, Dortner had held a, 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 a woman hostage, had tied them up in their, her and her husband, I believe, in their own home. And then he escaped that home because they were they were in their cabin. So they didn't know he would he had hunkered down in their cabin. And when they go in there, he's there. He ties them up, stays there for a little while. And then he leaves, steals their Nissan. Then he goes and he meets up with a gentleman. And I forgot his first name. His last name was Heltebreak. Heltebreak. Heltebreak was in his vehicle and he says Dorner just appears out of nowhere with a ballistic vest on and an assault rifle in his hand. He had just wrecked this Nissan Rogue that he stole. So he comes out and he points the weapon at this gentleman, Mr. Helterbreak, and he says, I don't want to hurt you. I only just get out the car and start walking. And Helterbreak didn't ask no questions. He got out the car and he walked away. But when he walked away, he made a telephone call, of course, and reported what he had seen and that his vehicle had been stolen. And now the net is getting that much tighter on Christopher Dorner, where he's in a cabin now. And the police kind of triangulate him 
to that cabin. So now this is when it's on. This is when his premonition of the way things would end for him came 100% true. It is him inside this cabin taking shots at the police. The few officers that were there initially were just trying to hold him off until SWAT and the armored vehicles were able to get in position where maybe they could negotiate for him to bring his ass out of this cabin. But we already know Dorner don't have no plan to negotiate and the police been trigger happy as well. So now these are two uh, very stressed entities, the law enforcement community and Christopher Dorner. Everybody is at high alert, high stress, uh, fight or flight. Dorner is trying to shoot his way out, which I don't, I've never understood. I guess he just wanted to go out in a blaze of glory. In this blaze of glory, Christopher Dorner shot two more of the responding officers, Alex Collins and Jeremiah McKay. They both were shot. McKay uh, succumbed to his injuries. So now you've got another police officer blood on your hands and law enforcement is trying to end this today. You know, they, of course they're going to end it because you're in the cabin and they are again outside. There's more of them than it is of you. So I can't get why Dorner thought it's a good idea to keep the stand going. If you were just going to go out now would have been the time, you know, but fire is being returned hundreds of rounds of fire between the two, the law enforcement community and Dorner. And then the uh, armored trucks come and the SWAT teams are figuring out what their next move is going to be. And uh, they decide they're going to gas this cabin. And the type of gas they use was a pyrotechnic tear gas. And what this canister does is when they throw it, when they deploy it, it catches fire. So they knew that there was a possibility of that place going up in smoke once they threw this thing in, you know, this tear gas in and that it would hopefully smoke Dorner out. But Dorner had no intention of being taken alive. So when those pyrotechnic tear gas uh, grenades were deployed, there were a few minutes, the cabin caught on fire. And then Dorner fired one shot. That one shot was was thought to be him committing suicide. Police now have to let all his ammunition that he has inside of the cabin. It's blowing up at this point. Um, and then they have to wait for the fire to be put out before they are able to go in and confirm that that was indeed Christopher uh, Dorner, I really, I was like, oh God, I hope it was him because if not, you guys had killed somebody else, <laughs> but it was, it was Christopher Dorner. The manhunt had come to an end. And uh, like I said, it wasn't a happy ending for Dorner unless 
him going out on his terms by him being the person who took his own life was some kind of win for him. I don't understand or know. I do know this. The police could breathe a sigh of relief because the uh, public enemy number one had been taken down. They found burnt remnants of his ID, which I never understand why killers and terrorists always have their fucking ID on them. It just blows my mind. Like today, I went to work with a purse, no ID, (laughs) no ID, nothing. If something were to happen to me, they would have to go through my phone and figure out who I was because I didn't have my ID with me. But terrorists and killers always have their fucking ID. But I digress. In his wake, he left four victims their families, children without parents and parents having to mourn their children, especially with Randall Kwan, who was doing nothing but trying to help Christopher Dorner. You have that aftermath. You've got millions of dollars in lawsuits because of these uh, innocent citizens who were caught up in the mayhem You got questions on a lot of people's minds about whether or not Christopher Dorner was telling the truth about his uh, witnessing excessive force. Like, I care about what happens to my community. And I mean, the black community and the greater area where I live, I am truly concerned and care about what happens in my community until the bearer of this news becomes a bigger threat. And Christopher Dorner had become too big of a threat to even figure out if he was telling the truth or making this whole thing up. It got to the point where you don't even care because he's creating more mayhem than one person should be allowed to. I myself congratulated the officers after after this was done, but there were a lot, still a lot of questions about what their training is in these situations. I feel like uh, the police are supposed to be cooler heads and cooler heads should prevail. But in this case, they got just as wound up as uh, a perpetrator and it could have turned out where they had bodies and lots of blood on their hands and we're just fortunate that it did not turn out that way so that's it that's Christopher Dorner that was the documentary like I said that I watched and I watched it on YouTube I will do some of the ones uh, on uh, Hulu and Netflix and Amazon Prime. I have those three streaming services. I might do some Dateline episodes. I might do some crap that I see on Investigation Discovery. So these are the types of conversations that I like to have as a bonus episode and maybe just periodically sprinkle a few of them in on a regular True Crime by the Book because I am all about true crime. The books, the documentaries, the movies, all about it. 
So, if you like this type of segment, you can always consider donating to the show. And if you'd like to see it become a regular segment on the regular show, you can email me at tcbytb at gmail.com. You can, you can catch me on Facebook and Twitter at tcbytb. Or you can just look up True Crime by the Book on either. And you will catch up with me. I'm on Pod Chaser, TC by TB. You can find it all over the place. Um, I don't even have my closing script. I usually like have something very nice that I say every week. Not today. Because <laughs> like I said, more relaxed. I'm not, you know, I'm just twirling my hair and trying to figure out what I'm going to eat for dinner. But anyway. I thank you, thank you, thank you for joining me. If you'd like to help the show in a non-financial manner, you can always leave me a review on uh, iTunes or your platform of choice, whichever way you listen to me. And uh, you can catch up with me again in two weeks. I will be back with a book and I don't really know what book I'm going for this time. Check me out on social media and I will have a tried and true answer for you on social media. Anyway, I have had a blast talking with you today. Later, bookworms.